today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. I guess we kind of knew this was going to happen after uh, you spend a year with a, uh, the world on hold uh, and then followed by lots of stimulus. But Stats Canada says the annual pace of inflation has gone up, rose to 3.7% in July, the biggest increase since May of 2011, uh, the year-over-year increase in the consumer price index compared to 3.1, uh, which was in June as more as parts more parts of the economy have uh, simply reopened. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Scott. So obviously, uh, the world on hold for a global pandemic, followed by lots of stimulus and emergency funding out the door. I guess, was this predicted? Uh, not everybody predicted it. Uh, there were some certainly that did suggest that this was going to happen. Jack Mintz, Professor Jack Mintz at the University of, uh, of uh, uh, Calgary. I mean, inflation is very straightforward, even though, you know, it sounds very exotic and, you know, complex. It isn't. It's too, let me state it simply in, in logical terms, which is what it is. It's too much money in aggregate in the economy. I didn't say one person. Too much money in the totality of the economy chasing too few goods. Or if you want to put it another way, there's more money trying to buy goods than there are goods being supplied. And so this is classic supply and demand. When there's a shortage of goods and you want something, what do you do? You mm-hmm. offer more money to get it because you want it. That's what people do when there's when they want something. And if there's a shortage of it, and I'm not, it could be a shortage of apartments. So then people offer key money under the table, which is a full way of driving up the price. You know, if there's a shortage of cars or computers or food or gasoline, people offer more money to get it because they need it. Or and lumber. So, I'm sorry. Or lumber. Or lumber. Or lumber. That's an excellent example. And so. In the there was a, an interruption to the supply across the economy, as we know, because of the pandemic, and then for reasons we all understand, the government started to pump enormous amounts of income support into the economy uh, in the hundreds of billions, and um, and so people were sitting at home, they couldn't spend it by and large. I mean, yes, you bought your groceries, of course, and you probably bought your beer or your wine, but you couldn't spend like a, in a normal economy, and so we had all these. Uh, all this extra money, and we had a shortage of goods because factories were closing, because some people got COVID in a factory, and the supply chains broke down. So this is an unintended consequence of the response to COVID. Now, it's not, it's not the only reason, but I think that that's a contributory reason. And and one more quick point, Scott. So your listeners can say, "Oh, well, so what? So it goes up to two and a half, three, three and a half, four. What's the big deal? Don't get your knickers in a knot." Well, let me connect the dots. If inflation remains elevated, and elevated means more than two and a half percent, I believe. So if it remains at three, three and a half, uh, in going forward indefinitely, the Bank of Canada will raise interest rates mm-hmm. once they realize and believe it's embedded. Right now they're saying, ah, it's temporary, it's going to come back down to, and so they're waiting and watching. And they're saying, 
no, we're not going to raise rates right now because we think it's coming back down. And you can say that in the short run because it might come back down. But if a year from now, and so I'm even putting myself on the limb, I'm saying but in 2022, if rates aren't back, if inflation's not back down, I believe rates are going to go up. And by the way, for those who say that's just one person, you know, uh, one professor, what does he know, blah, 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 the Parliamentary Budget Office, in its latest report, to the parliamentarians and to the public and the media, are predicting two interest rate increases in 2022 because of rising interest uh, inflation rates. Uh, obviously, the headlines say that this is the biggest uh, jump in over a decade. Are we keeping that in the in context, considering we've just gone through the first pandemic in, in, in what has been a century? Uh, and, and to add to that, we've been talking for 20 years about how historically low these okay. interest rates are. It's not going to last forever. Uh, and then all of a sudden, well, maybe it is. This is the new normal. Is this the blast of reality? It, will this global pandemic change the, 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 the trajectory we're on? Uh, there's two uh, schools of thought right now of very learned, knowledgeable people, um, economists and academic institutions, but not just economists and academic institutions, uh, central bankers, retired central bankers, like people that are really, really, really knowledgeable and experienced. And the two schools are, you can guess what they are. One is saying rates will return back to, inflation will return back to normal around 2%, so this is not a long-term permanent thing. So those, that school of thought is agreeing with the Bank of Canada and agreeing with the Federal Reserve. The other school, and there's some very serious people in the other school, the former chief economist of the Bank of England, is of the school that says, no, inflation is becoming embedded. Lawrence Summers, the former finance minister under Barack Obama, is saying he believes inflation is becoming embedded. So these are some very serious people. There's very serious people on the other side uh, arguing they will, the rate, the inflation rate will come back down, so don't worry. So there's, uh, to answer your question, we don't know because there's some very learned, scholarly, experienced people on both sides of this argument. Some very serious people are saying inflation is going to return to normal around 2%, and there will be no need for interest rate increases. And the other school of thought, and they're writing op-eds in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, very, very serious, prestigious publications are saying, no, interest rates are going to be going up because inflation is becoming embedded. And we're going to know, I think, in the next year or so, after the election, of course, we won't know in the next 60 days or 30 days, but I think we'll know, we'll have a very good idea by mid-2022, where uh, if inflation's not back down, I think we'll start to see interest rates move by mid-2022, which is a little less than a year from now. Are you surprised that we could go through a global pandemic and them not rise? And then what's that? And then the rates not rise. I mean, yeah, just... good point. Very good point. Um, I mean, there were supply interruptions. We all know that. And inevitably, if you have a supply interruption, which means in plain English that some goods are not getting to market, well, there's going to be buyers that really want those goods, so they will bid them up. So I think that that was inevitable. Yeah. The question, Scott, I think, in the next 6, 8, 12 months, 14 months, by uh, armchair quarterbacks like me, <laughs> will be, did we overstimulate? There's no debate that we should have done what we did, help people that lost their job because of the pandemic. Nobody is, uh, is, is serious, is making the argument we should have done absolutely zero. Nobody's making that argument. The question is, 
Did we stimulate for too long a period of time? Did we put too much money in the economy so that there was too much money chasing those that shortage of goods? And that is going to be debated, and there will be PhD theses written on this, I predict, in economics departments uh, for years to come. Did the government overstimulate? I am of the school of the beliefs that the government is stimulated too much for too long. They should have done it in the short run, as they did. But where they went too far was in, as I put it, um, de facto amending the unemployment insurance system, which has guided our country for, my goodness, since the Second World War, 80-odd years, which, and which most Canadians support. That, you know, if you lose your job, you get a percentage of your income, like 65 or 70 percent, and you must be looking for a job and you can't turn one down if it's in your area of expertise where you live. And when we brought out all the income support programs, we threw that out the window. Said, we're going to give you $2,000 a month no matter what you are making. Doesn't matter. And by the way, you don't have to be looking for a job. You can, in fact, turn down jobs. And those two things, those two three features, I think, first off, it, it sabotaged the, the, the unemployment insurance system. But more importantly, what, I did, what it did, I think, is it ensured that a lot more money got injected into the system so we even had more money sluicing around. And it showed up for those who think I'm being harsh. It showed up in the fact that we've got some $200 billion sitting in bank accounts in Canada. If there was really a desperate state of affairs, when you're starving to death, you don't put your money in a bank account. You go and buy groceries with it. So the fact that we put collectively, us, we Canadians, put $200 billion into our bank account showed that we didn't need all that stimulus. Because if we did, we wouldn't have banked it. We would have spent it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about a uh, Stats Canada saying the pace of inflation has risen to 3.7%. Often when we get these numbers, they say it's only certain segments of uh, industry. If you take out this or that, then it's back to normal. Is that the case here or is this across the board? For example, fuel price is quite high right now. Yeah. Um, Stats Canada, fortunately... Um, listened, and I'm a very strong advocate, a supporter of StatsCan. I don't consult with them, but I support them. I use their data all the time. And they were criticized for many, many, many years that they were underweighting, to use the jargon, not counting properly, to use plain English, um, uh, some of the biggies, energy and housing. And their argument was, well, they're so variable that we shouldn't include them from a sort of a statistical point of view. And a lot of people said, well, what are you talking about? I still got to pay for it. Just because it may be a statistical aberration doesn't mean I get a, uh, a pass on my mortgage payment every month. And so they revised the methodology. I know people, are, their eyes are going to glaze over when they hear that word, but I won't go any more into it than that. They revised the formula. They just used that word, the, the recipe, the formula, to measure inflation. And what they did was they gave a, more, a heavier a weight um, to housing and energy. This was a good thing. It's more credible. It's more realistic. And now to your question, what were the two biggies in the, in the, when you break down the inflation? Because it, it, you have different inflation rates for different parts of the economy. Well, guess what? Well, we all know energy and housing yeah. went up a lot, and that's what's pulling up the inflation rate. So let's turn the question around when we say, where's inflation going? Do, do people believe that housing is going to go back down fairly dramatically? Because uh, that will pull down the inflation rate. Or do you think that energy costs are going to go down? Um, uh, because that will pull down the inflation rate. I don't think 
certainly not energy, because we know there's carbon taxes, and they're getting uh, uh, stronger every year, They're meaning they're going up. So we're going to be paying more and more in percentage terms in carbon taxes. So nobody can argue energy prices. Well, you can argue it. You could argue that the baseline of energy is going down, but there's no evidence for that, that energy is going to get cheaper going forward. And on housing, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's you know, some people say the market's going to crash, and others are saying it's not going to crash. So you, those are the two big ones that are, are really pushing inflation right now, housing and energy, and I don't see that abating or getting um, less uh, strong uh, in anytime soon. Uh, we've talked for many years, Ian, and uh, you always break it down so everyone can understand. Uh, you use the term supply and demand when talking about inflation earlier yeah. on. The big issues, housing and energy, does that mean we need more housing, we need more energy, that will drive these prices down. Yes, yes, and and I'll explain why, uh, because I like to support what I'm saying so people don't just think I'm just saying this out of thin air. We bring in one new Ottawa to Canada every three years. A million, Ottawa, the city of Ottawa, where I've lived all my life, is a million people. It's called immigration. I support immigration. I don't want anyone to think I'm against immigration. We bring a million new people into Canada every three years. One new Ottawa gets dropped into Canada every three years. Of course we need more houses. Of course we need more energy because the country is growing in absolute numbers of human beings living in the country. That means we need more houses. We need more energy. We need more schools and so forth. So... And, and I do support immigration, and we need more immigration because we are rapidly aging, and we're facing labor shortages as far as the eye can see for the next 30, 40, 50 years. So, yes, we do need more immigration. But one of the consequences of that is we need more housing. Yeah. We need more houses. And that's why I've been so critical of municipals, municipalities, the city of Ottawa, the councillors, and the city of Toronto, who have done their utmost to sh- slow down the construction of new houses, because they call it urban sprawl. But urban sprawl is just a pejorative negative term for growth of the population. Yeah. So they're in denial, I argue, of the fact that we are growing because of our positive policy on immigration. And they don't want to accept that when you grow your country through immigration, you need to build more houses and you need more energy. And that's my criticism of them. They're in denial. I'm sure these people support immigration, but they're in denial of the consequences. When you have the country growing in the population, in in the total population, you need to build more houses, and you need more energy because every human being uses energy. Heat their homes, energy used to produce the food in the food supply chain, etc., um, uh, obviously, this has been the chatter for an awfully long time. The word "urban sprawl." I remember Dalton McGinty saying, yeah. "We're not in. We're not interested in building any more roads. We're not yeah. interested in yeah. building any more of this type of infra- infrastructure." Right. Has COVID nineteen changed that attitude on urban sprawl? Uh, um, you I know, think, go I, ahead, Scott. You've asked an excellent question. I've been debating this with a lot of people. Um, I think the paradox of, of uh, the pandemic is that it's going to exacerbate, I hate the word urban sprawl because I've already said, I just think it's a, it's a negative attempt to brand growth in the population. Yeah, growth is bad. Growth is bad. 
and and you know they won't come out and say we're against immigration. Yeah. And I'm not saying Dalton McGuinty was against immigration. I'm just saying they refuse to acknowledge that immigration increases our population and therefore creating the need for more houses and growing new suburbs at the edge of the city. And and what what the uh, pandemic has done, and I'm certainly seeing it in my area, but it's going on across Canada, is people are trying to get. Let me be really blunt. Trying to get the hell out of the downtown. Yeah. Where there's lots and lots of people close together. That's a recipe for getting COVID. And so people are trying to get out to the burbs and even beyond the burbs. So you've seen prices skyrocket in eastern Ontario, an hour outside of Ottawa, in these small towns and villages. And it's going on outside of Toronto. It's going outside of every big city. And what the irony is, is that this is going to make us more car dependent, not more mass transit, because you can't run the mass transit out to every small town and village uh, in, in rural, remote Canada. You need your car to get out to towns that are an hour or two hours outside of Toronto. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, it's going to need more roads, and people are building more houses out there, because they want to get out of high uh, density in the downtown which is what the urban planners have been advocating for the past many years, is we need more intensification, more urbanization in the downtown. But COVID has caused people to want to go in the exact opposite direction. It'll be fascinating to see what this redesign of communities look like and how everyone balances this. Because, again, there's a huge movement to prevent this sort of growth, yet there's a huge demand for it. Somewhere the solution is in the middle, but nobody in government seems to want to have that discussion. I mean, the urban planners, and I'm just using that word sort of as a catch-all phrase for those people who try and, you know, run municipalities, but also federal governments and provincial government planners, that they want to go a certain way in a certain direction. And it's intensification, uh, more density, uh, more compact cities, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is that large numbers, millions and millions and millions of Canadians don't want to have anything to do with it. They want to have their space out in the, in the, in, you know, in the suburbs, in the sunshine. They want a big backyard. They want a single-family house. They don't want to be on the 50th floor of an apartment, a high-rise building in downtown Toronto, raising a 2-year-old and a 5-year-old. So there's a huge contradiction between what the urban planners want in government, call it the government planners, and ordinary people, ordinary Canadians. They don't want and are not buying the vision of the central planners, of the urban planners. And um, now the urban planners have the power, because they control the levers of government, the machinery of government. But individual Canadians have the power of the purse, meaning I can choose to spend my money where I want and buy whatever house I want, if I can afford it. And if I want to move out two hours outside of downtown Toronto, that's my choice, and you cannot stop me. So there's a real interesting crash coming a train wreck almost coming between what the planners want and what ordinary canadians want it's going to be fascinating to see what the new smart community looks like because it's not what the smart community looked like 10 years ago uh ian lee's been with us associate professor sprott school of business carleton university Ian, is always fascinating discussion thanks so much for the time be well my pleasure scott thank you the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 chml